Welcome back to Many Windows, the podcast about education for everyone who cares about education. I am John Cassie, and I'm joined as always by my dear friend and co-host, Jennifer McGlemory. Jennifer, how you doing? I'm good. I think that um, for the first episode in this series, we didn't do our little intro together. Right. So this is our first intro together right. for this series. Right. Uh, yeah. Kidney stones. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Devastating. It was a lot of me in the last episode, but you kicked it off for us. Yeah, right. So, and now, you know, listeners, we're we're back at it. And I'm delighted to give Jennifer, uh, you know, an opportunity to speak a little bit about a, a, a professional learning, a sort of parent learning opportunity that she had uh, facilitated with her, uh, with her crew in Burbank. And what she did with with these folks directly connects to the theme, you know, of this season where we're really drilling down on the questions of diversity, equity, and inclusion from a literary lens. Uh, Jennifer, talk a little bit about what you just had a chance to do with your with your families. Yeah, let me provide you a little context for what you're going to hear. Yeah. Um, the background is uh, my. PTSA, Parent Teacher Student Association, at the beginning of the year, as we came together virtually, uh, one of our goals was to create a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that would meet separately and that would report to the association. And we had a couple of goals. One of them was to increase the um, uh, the diversity within PTSA, because mm -hmm. frankly, our parent group, the, the parents that attend our PTSA meetings don't represent our full diversity within our school. Right. So one of our goals is to try and increase that. But also we've been having these parent education evenings. John and I have presented at one last year, as a matter of yep. fact, um, when we were talking about how much screen time is too much, and which I always think is pretty funny now since we have kids on screens all day. Right, uh, right. <laughs> last year, that was our big, our big thing. Right. Um, uh, this year, particularly after the summer we had with George Floyd, and now we've had a, a recent, um, uh, the verdict came through just recently now um, for uh, Chauvin. So it's been this whole year, even though we've been overwhelmed with the pandemic, there's also all of these other issues that are going on that, that we're trying to tackle as well. Right. So I know my district has got all these different committees that parents are serving on and people from the community and teachers and coming together around these issues of social justice and diversity and how to improve. So we this little committee that I'm on of parents, we decided we really wanted to, we want to have a series of panels. Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of partnered with our parent ed person to put on the first panel. That's what you're going to hear today. Okay. So we went round and round about, you know, what would the title of this panel? First, it was going to be, it was going to be parents and students and LGBTQ and you know, different races. And then we're like, whoa, 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 this, this is way too much for just one. So we decided we're going to do a series ultimately. And the first one we've called, you know, how do you be an ally to um, 
another group of people that's different from you. That's a, that's a very long title. We just called it how to be an ally. <laughs> uh, and so we have, it's a, we, we made the panel much smaller and kept it to just adults. Uh, so we have a, a, a black man who's a parent of two boys at our school. Uh, the person who runs our committee is an Asian American mom at my school. Then we have um, a teacher who is also a parent uh, who actually you met in the last uh, in the last episode, Lucy Bowers, was mm -hmm. talking about right. uh, books. Uh, so she identifies as a as a um, a black Latina, I think is what she has said. And then we had one other, um, oh, and then we had a Latino male, Mr. Avila, who works at our school uh, as our intervention specialist. So I was moderating the panel. I just had a few questions and it starts with asking them to share their stories. Uh, and right. it, it turned, I think it really came off very well. I recorded it. I had asked them at the beginning if we could use their, their audio. It's the, the visuals that go with this, the Zoom that we were all on, I recorded and it's posted on our school website. And I said, could I also use the audio for our podcast season? Because it goes so beautifully right. with what we've been talking about, John. Right, for sure. Uh, I am. Um... I've listened and I think that it's, it's tight and that's what's good for, for a show like, like ours, right? I think that listeners, if you, if you give this episode a shot, uh, you'll actually learn what you need to know in order to be a, a more effective ally, which we all wanna be in mm -hmm. this day and age. So, uh, so folks have a listen and we'll be back again in just a few weeks with uh, the next episode where we're going to speak with a high school English teacher uh, about building uh, a, a sort of new canon, if you will, for, uh, for 21st century readers. And I'm sure you're going to find that episode interesting as well. So, uh, so onward now to Jennifer's facilitation of this panel, How to Be an Ally. Thanks so much for listening. So good evening, everybody. I'm Dr. Meg. I'm the principal of Dolores Huerta Middle School in Burbank. This is the first in a series of panel discussions in which we will dig deep into the experience of race, culture, religion, gender identity, and disability in our own community and learn from one another. Tonight, our focus is on race and later panels will dive into other areas of discrimination. I expect that this series will take us all the way through 2022. We're recording this webinar for a podcast, Many Windows, and also it will be posted on the Dolores Huerta website. Tonight's panel consists of parents and educators who are part of our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at Dolores Huerta. The DEI committee has partnered with Brittany McNamara, who has brought you all of our parent education nights this year for PTSA. We're using the webinar feature of Zoom, which shows only the panelists and the host, that's me on the screen, but please feel free to write any of your questions in the Q&A. 
Uh, I will be moderating the panel. I'll start us off with a few questions and then I'll move to the Q&A and we'll take as many questions as we have time for. Uh, there's also a feature uh, in which uh, you can request to be unmuted. I believe that's under the raise your hand. And I know we have some uh, participants behind the scenes who are on our DEI committee. And uh, we would love for you to uh, participate. If you have something to contribute, just go ahead and when the time comes, raise your hand and I'll unmute you. So now let me set the context for tonight's discussion. Raising kids is hard. Raising socially conscious, empathetic kids is even harder. If you're white, it's rare that you grew up with parents who talked about racial injustice. Many of us were raised to not see color or be colorblind, an imaginary state in which we just don't acknowledge our white privilege or racial inequities that are brimming just beneath the surface. Just because you refuse to see it doesn't mean it's not there. For parents of color, they're forced to acknowledge these inequities and prepare their children for a world in which they're profiled, tracked, and judged because of their race. For those of us who are white, sometimes we're afraid to talk about the subject of race for fear of saying the wrong thing. So tonight, we have four people who will share their stories with us and answer some of our questions about how to talk to our kids about race, inequity, and injustice in our world. So let me introduce our panelists. Uh, I was gonna say to my, to my left, but it may be different for you guys. Miss Lucy Bowers is a teacher at Dolores Huerta, but she also is the parent of two high schoolers and a future cougar who is in elementary school right now. Uh, next, we have Mr. Belma Johnson, who is a parent and the co-chair of our DEI committee. Stephanie Sheshtag is also a parent at Dolores Huerta. She's the chairperson of our DEI committee. And of course, Mr. Juan Avila is our amazing intervention specialist. Everybody knows him. So I'll start with my first question for the panel. I'll throw this to Ms. Bowers and we'll go around my circle here, Mr. Johnson, Ms. Sheshtag and Mr. Avila. I'd like you to tell us about your experience growing up. Where did you grow up? How did your community either support you or discriminate against you while you were growing up? Um, I grew up in a little city that you guys may have all heard of. It's called Burbank, California. Um, I lived here my whole life. I, I went away for college, but my parents still lived here. Um, and then I came back when I had my children and my husband went to law school, we decided to come home to be near our family. Growing up here was weird, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I'm a Afro-Latina, um, and most of my friends were white. My husband's white. Most of the kids that I hung out with were white. Um, and I grew up in the 80s 90s, which was the era of colorblindness, tolerance, uh, don't ask, don't tell. And I think that that was kind of how I grew up. Um, my race was something that people just kind of ignored or didn't talk about or didn't bring up uh, unless it was a negative thing, in which case, you know, I dealt with hearing the N-word, getting asked questions about, um, pointed questions about my racial identity, things like that. Um, the best example I can give is when I was growing up here, um, my mom, who came here from Nicaragua, uh, whenever she wanted to get ingredients to cook dinner from her 
from her family home. She used to go to a little supermarket named Specters, which is no longer there anymore, but it was Specters Supermercado Latino. And it was right across the street from where Ralph's is, um, Buena Vista and Victory. And so it was to me just emblematic of my childhood going to one market to get the food that we would eat, that I would take to school, my sandwiches, things that I would share with other kids, and then going across the street to this tiny little market that's now the 99 cent store and buying the ingredients that resonated with my culture and with my family heritage. Um, now, I'm very thankful that we don't, I don't have to do that. I can go to Ralph's and I can buy an avocado or queso ranchero or, you know, guavas, any of those things now. But back then when I was a student, it was definitely a different time where cultures weren't really embraced. Um, another good example is my language. I do speak Spanish. It was my first language. I had it drilled out of me in school. Um, so that now I still speak Spanish, but my accent is the most American Valley Girl Spanish accent you'll ever hear. I can still roll my R's, but it definitely comes across to my family in Nicaragua. They all kind of laugh at me with my accent. So it's a different time for sure than it is now for my kids growing up here. Mr. Johnson. Unmute. Um, so I grew, I was born in Los Angeles. Um, I um, grew up in, in what would you would call a middle-class black neighborhood until about fifth grade. Um, and so what was interesting was that there was one day in fifth grade when I came home with, um, I don't know, you probably don't know this, but if you take two popsicle sticks and you wrap them around, wrap a, a, a rubber band around the middle of them, and then you sharpen one of them, it turns into like this little kid version of a switchblade, which if you're in fifth grade, that's just a fascinating thing. And so, and, and there's, there was, so I learned this from this, this club and also this walk. And so I came home to show my parents what I had learned today about this, this club, you know, um, and it because you could pick which club. One of the clubs was called the Crips, the other was called the Bloods. And so I came home and explained this to my parents, like, and look, they showed me how to make this. So all I remember after that was my parents' door being closed. And you could hear, you know, parents having that, that discussion after the kids. So that went on for, I don't know, like 20 minutes. Yada, yada, yada. We moved, I think, within three weeks of that day uh, because my father was his point. Basic point was the whole the whole reason why we moved to L.A. was to get away from that stuff, which, you know, they grew up in the Midwest. And now all of a sudden, you know, it, it, here it was again. This is the thing that he was working so hard to get us away from. And here it was coming into his house because we didn't know anything. about it. it was just a club. That's people wonder, oh, why are these people in gangs? It's like they're not sold as gangs. <laughs> it's like, you want to be in a club. What kid doesn't want to be in a club? You know, you can have all these other people in your club and we'll teach you things. Here's the ice cream. Now we'll show you what to do with the sticks. So that was that experience. We moved from there um, to Palos Verdes. Now you can't think of the, 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 the first story was, was took place in Hawthorne. There are not, there are no places more different than Hawthorne and Palos Verdes. Um, and so I, what I remember most about it showing up that first day in, in Palos Verdes, because literally my mother picked us up from school midday from uh, Ingle, uh, Cimarron Elementary School, where it was 30 black kids and one white teacher. 
and we drove to Palos Verdes that day. So it's like, we didn't even complete that day. We just started the new school like midday. My, my father just like, get us out of here now. That was basically the mandate. And so we went to uh, uh, Palos Verdes and there it was maybe 13 kids in the school, all of whom were white, uh, 13 in the classroom, all of whom were white. There was maybe 300, 400 in the whole school of whom three were black, counting myself and my brother. So we tripled the black enrollment. So it was quite a shocking day. And I remember, because Palos Verdes is very hilly, you may know. So I remember, you know, I was a kid. So I just wondered, what is it like to go down that hill on, in your roller skates? Because I was used to flatlands, you know, where you have to do all the, it's all leg power. I just thought, boy, you could just kind of go. And so I, I, of course, you know, this is back when we had metal skates, the metal wheels. And so I hit a pebble. <laughs> So you, if you're old enough to know what, what the, you know what that I went flying. I landed on this guy's lawn, and he comes rushing out of his house and puts his face right here. And it was like just yell, all I remember is like really loud, really scared. I was scared anyway. I went flying, landed on his lawn. He's yelling at me right here, and he he, he drops an in bomb if you want to call it that. It's the first time I had heard that word used that way, and that was like my first day in Palos Verdes. And so, and I, I never really told my parents. My my parents are, have both passed. They never heard this story, uh, but it was like very different <laughs> from what we had experienced right before. And so, that's where it began. I, I, it's all of my point of view comes from that day, going from one school that that was almost entirely black, except for the authority figures, to another school where we were the only black people, and virtually the only black people, it was me, my brother, and Billy Baker. Um, and that experience and a completely different academic setting. I mean, I'd never seen a brand new school book. You know, it was always the hand-me-down books. I, I never knew, I never saw everybody having a book. I mean, there was just all these things that were so different. I'd never seen grass at an elementary school or in any school that, you know, I had to, it's just all of these things is like suddenly changed overnight. And, and, and I think the most striking thing was I was an accelerated, uh, classes in, at, back at Cimarron, which is the, the black school, the highest math class, the highest English class, highest everything. This, they put me in kindergarten when we, when we went to this, this all white school. And, you know, that was really awkward, a fifth grader in a, you know, little chairs, but, and, but each day they moved to try to find my level. And I, I leveled out at third grade. So what was accelerated math at Cimarron was third grade math at Point Vicente and Palos Verdes. And that is where all of my, my all of my politics come from that. <laughs> it's like, so I'm bored in the accelerated class learning less than what people right across the town, like an hour away are learning in third grade. This is just, it just, there's just an inequity in that. And so, you know, my whole life is, is, is not, not my entire life, but a lot of my life is devoted to that. <laughs> just like really trying to, <laughs> say, what if, what if I had stayed there, like everybody else in that classroom? What happened to those other 29 people in that classroom? Um, and, and, and what responsibility do I have? That's why I'm here now, um, is, is because, of, because of that day. What a sharp contrast. And just to think of it being in one day, yeah. um, I can see where your passion comes from. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie. So um, I grew up predominantly in um, San Inez. I don't know if any, you know, it's north of here. It's a very small town um, where it's kind of half the town is affluent and the other half is their farmers. 
And um, I was, me and my brother and sister were the only Asian people in this town for until I was in high school. And <clears throat> excuse me. So I faced a lot of racism and people screaming things at me, you know, like I would play basketball on the basketball court during recess. And I remember this kid um, pretty consistently, whenever he would see me play basketball, he'd come over and scream things like chink and um, gook and chase me off the basketball courts. So that was my lovely experience in I mean, elementary school and middle school. Um, by the time I got to, and it was, you know, it was, it was that consistently can just, I, I think people just didn't understand. Um, they just were not acquainted with Asian people at all. And I'm half, I'm half Korean and half Austrian. So um, by the time I got to high school though, it was, had become slightly more diverse. I think there were, there was one other, or maybe, I think one other Asian person in the school, um, mostly Latinx and white. Um, and by then though, I think I had learned to blend in. Like I had really kind of bolstered up all my white features. So I, you know, I learned that boys thought I was cute. So I really leaned into being cute. And, um, and so just kind of learn to blend in more and hype up my kind of whiteness. <laughs> and it's also was interesting because I, my parents were divorced and I lived with my dad and his new wife, my stepmom was white. So we also didn't have parents at home who really understood our experience in school. And my dad is pretty like conservative. He's not very like I don't feel that he was empathetic to my experience or really understood it. So that was all so hard. So it was kind of like me and my brother and sister kind of bonding together over this experience. So at least we had each other. Um, and, you know, it wasn't by the time I got to high school, it was much better and blending in was much easier. And there were just more kids and maybe it wasn't that big of a deal by then. Um, yeah. And then so when I went to college, I studied, um, I studied women of color. I went to Mills College, which is a very liberal school, all women in Oakland. And I studied my, my, I had a major in psychology and a minor in women of color. And that kind of launched me into really delving into my own identity as a woman of color and sense of pride and sense of just like historical understanding of just all people of color in, in the, in the United States and, and, and being a woman and a woman of color. So that was, um, a great education and great experience. So I don't know. That's, that's it. Thank you. Juan Avila. Thank you, Dr. Meg. Um, well, you know, I grew up in Glendale, um, um, I was born in Mexico, but as an infant, I, I, I shipped, I call it shipped, which is a whole nother story that I'm not gonna get into right now. <laughs> and they, we settled in Glendale, California, where I was raised. And it was, it was predominantly white, but very diverse in the, in, in the sense that there was a, a large population of Armenians, Cubans, um, South Americans. So it was a diverse white population. 
And we did not have any um, uh, African-American family in our, in our neighborhood. Um, and so, um, but I managed to still build this respect of other cultures because my dad he, uh, was a one that believed of, of assimilating into America. He was so proud of being an American that he brought, you know, he came into this country, he moved into Dallas, built businesses, came to uh, to California, did the same, and is so grateful to America that we need to assimilate into the American culture. We had to celebrate Halloween. We had to celebrate all these holidays of American culture. But in the house, we needed to keep our own culture. Uh, in other words, we weren't allowed to speak any English in the house. We were only allowed to speak Spanish. And so we lived this bicultural life. And where in the house, I, we kept our Mexican uh, culture, speaking Spanish, eating Mexican food, respecting our elders, all the, the values of our Mexican culture. But outside of the home, we needed to learn English. We needed to celebrate American holidays. We needed to do what the American uh, life was. Um, and so we needed to excel in our English. Um, uh, and, and, and being in that school, I also got teased for being, you know, Mexican. So I got called a beaner. I got called a wetback. Uh, I mean, we I suffered, all, you know, all those things, name calling that we do, um, and that back then is suffering. But as I grew older, um, I, I didn't see it as suffering. I, I saw it as strengthening myself to really build this resiliency. Um, because there was no one there to, to guard me from that. I just had to take it in, process it, and move on with life. So um, in a sense, um, I, I, it, it helped me build that resiliency uh, through that adversity that I had with my race. Um, and then um, I had another added uh, layer of my sexuality later on. So then I had to deal with that type of discrimination. So I think that all of that life experience that I had from uh, racism, and then later on through um, through my sexuality and the, the all the, uh, the the adversity that comes with that, I I, it, I really built this compassion. I remember one friend that I had in fourth grade who came from Germany, and uh, people uh, associated her with the Holocaust and would call her Nazi on all these horrible names that are associated with Olga. And I saw that and I saw that and I saw how horrible that was to her and she became my friend. So um, now looking back and reflecting on it, it was a way for, I think that's when I really started to shift my perspective uh, where it, I wasn't thinking of myself anymore. And now I was thinking of another person and built that empathy. Um, and because I always remember her and that shifted my perspective where I took it out of myself. And then I started to think about her and how horrible she felt of being associated with that part of history. And she and I became friends. And, um, and, and those are the kind of relationships that I value so much because, and, and because of the resiliency that I built. I am who I am today. <laughs> <laughs> 
ending things on a positive <laughs> note. But you know, um, almost all of our panelists talked about experiencing a racial slur. I mean, as early as elementary school. Um, and although I think most white students aren't bullies and they don't all use inappropriate language and racial slurs, they definitely overhear it. And by eighth grade, it's not uncommon that the music they listen to will contain the N-word and other derogatory language. So, and maybe, uh, Belma, maybe you can start us off on this question. What should white parents say to their children, either when they ask about it or if they overhear a racial or homophobic slur? What, how do you think parents should address this with their kids? So I think the, the key thing, and it's the difficult thing with all of this, is it, it, it depends on the kid. Um, you know, and it depends on at what point in the kid's life one, one is. Um, you know, I've, I have two, very different, even though they're twins. <laughs> and, and they've changed, seems like every year in not, I mean, of course they change, but I mean, they've changed like substantially, it seems like every year. And so that answer changes. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's not as easy as, well, I saw that webinar. I'm, I'm good for life. It's, it's, it's just not. And, and it, the other factor besides the kid, the time of the kid's life and or development, but also the circumstances. I mean, like this week we have the twin bill of there's that 13 year old kid who uh, was killed in Chicago, or I don't know if he's killed or not. I just know there was an incident in Chicago and I'm, I'm on a deadline. So I haven't even like read up on what that was, uh, but I, my sons are going to be 13 this summer. Um, and so they're in the, 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 the target zone. Meanwhile, there's this, this other case that just culminated today. And then there's the new cases about to start. So what's going on plus who the kid is, is, is the answer. It, it, it just, I, I wish I could, didn't have to say depends. It's the lamest answer ever, but it, it is what it is. And what I, what I, what I believe is true is you kind of can't stop this conversation. You, you can't try to like gear up for the moment. Like today's the verdict. Oh, what am I going to say? I think that's, that's the mistake um, because it's so complex. There are, it's a mo they're moving parts. There are things that aren't happening now. Your kids need to know. Um, and so it's just something you have to talk about. And, and what's, well, I, I can't, remember, I think maybe you said it, Dr. Meg is like, families of color talk about these things in some way or another all the time. I just think it's probably true that white people don't because that whole silence thing, you know, but the problem is the silence is killing us. Um, the silence is, is, you know, it, they, they say silence is violence. It's, it's not, I don't think that's accurate, but it certainly leads to violence it, because it just perpetuates. It's the foundation of all of this. Most race racism isn't done by most people. <laughs> it's a small percentage. But what most people do is ignore it, say nothing, and do nothing, and that's why those who who are the the the, the henchmen of it all get away with it. And so, it, and and if ever the, the you know the crowd turns on that, you 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 get a different outcome. So the silence is it's not acceptable. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was posting this last summer to my friends, you know, from high school, I went to, as I said, Dana Hills High School in, in, in uh, Dana Point. And I was like, the silence is deafening. And I, there, I literally ended lifelong relationships over it because like, this is not the time to be quiet. <laughs> you know, you cannot tell me because you're afraid because it's awkward. 
you can't say any of that to me. <laughs> you know, you, you have to say something. You have to say something or we're done. And, and, and so some of us are done. So I think what it comes down to is who's the kid? Because there's a kid who can process it all. And there's a kid who will be traumatized by it. There's a kid who um, can hear you speak frankly and honestly and openly and then go blab it at school out of context. And now your whole family's branded <laughs> as racist. But there's another kid who could take it and absorb it. And so it just, you, it really comes down to that. Um, and, and I think of anything that I say, that's the most important thing is that there's not a way to talk to black people. There's not a type of black person. <laughs> there's, there's not a, a thing to say to kids. It's like, it, you really do have to just decide, I'm going to be committed to this and, 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 and then do it. What, what Mr. Avila said really struck me about how, how his life changed when he became an ally. And I just think if this is about allyship, typically we think of white allies. All of, here are all the people of color, we're gonna teach you how to be our allies. That's not it. Everyone needs to be an ally. <laughs> you know, you, you know, I decided, you know, actually, it's, it's coincidentally, right before I met Stephanie, I did, uh, that I'm Asians are like getting pummeled in this country. They're just getting bullied. I'm, I'm sick of it. <laughs> I'm going to start saying something. I'm going to start posting it. And then all of a sudden, and it's funny because then I met Stephanie. And then shortly after that, I hired this editor just based on her reel. Turns out she's Asian. It's, just, it's weird how life happens. But, but what I've learned is Boy, it's not easy being an ally. You don't know what to say. <laughs> it is awkward. Am I, am I, am I, am I saying the wrong thing right now? You know, but you have to just go. And what's what's great is as a as a black person, it makes me more empathetic to other allies. I'm much more forgiving as I stumble my way through trying to be one. And so I, I think that's the most important thing is to not try to figure out what to say, not figure out how to respond to this moment. But, but just decide, speak frankly, honestly to your child, look, we're going to just do this and we're going to make mistakes and you're going to say things and people are going to get mad who you're trying to help. And you're just going to have to learn from that <laughs> and apologize <laughs> and then encourage them to be an ally so they will have more empathy for you. But even if they don't, you might just have to take that bullet, but we're going to do this. I think that's what's important is it's, it's not so much what to say. It's the commitment, the honesty, the, 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 vulnerability is part of it. You know, it's like, you're worried about what to say. I'm worried my sons aren't going to come home. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm worried. They, they, they like to take walks now. And I'm like, when, when, how do we talk to them about the cop thing? What about this, the day of the trial? I mean, my son wanted to go to the park. You just send your kid to the park. I got to think about this other stuff. That's more important than your awkwardness, <laughs> more important than your discomfort is that. And so just know that accept that, live with it, and teach your kids to live with it. I think that's it. It's like, there isn't an easy answer, but we got to do this. One of the books that we're uh, reading as a DEI committee that I would recommend is Raising White Kids. And the very first chapter, she starts out by saying, you know, she was, uh, the author is a, a white girl at a school that was predominantly I think black and, and maybe Latinx students. And so an, another little white girl comes up to her in elementary school and says, oh, we, need, we should form the white girls club. And she was you know, not really tuned in to, to uh, race at that age. And a teacher overheard this conversation 
and reacted. One of her favorite teachers reacted like, oh, that's so inappropriate. And she got hauled into the principal's office and they got in trouble and she really didn't understand why. And when I read that, it just took me back to being a teacher in the classroom and, and overhearing, you know, some inappropriate name calling or just something that I didn't really know how to handle. And just my reaction was just to want to squash it and say, oh, well, that's just inappropriate. We're not talking like that. And then moving on. And now, you know, I know, I know better now, but I, uh, and Lucy, maybe you can even comment on this being in the classroom. And we've been going through this process together of looking at some of the books that we've been reading that use the N word and talking about how that's not appropriate. And we've talked a lot about that. Could you, would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a, that is, uh, Belma, I really appreciate everything that you had to say, and it uh, echoed my sentiments that I posted earlier today. You know, it's a historic day, and however you feel about it, um, some people angry, some people sad, some, you know, there's a lot of feelings, but to, to see someone going through pain and not saying something or not initiating a conversation is more painful than anything else to have things swept under the rug or just to be ignored you know or to have to have your pain be less important than someone's awkwardness i i personally have been advocating for people to just say i don't know what to say but i'm here for you easy phrase that anyone can say i don't know what to say right now but i'm here for you i i understand i don't understand what you're going through but i understand how you might feel right now what can i do to help you it's okay to not have answers, but to avoid the conversation entirely is not okay anymore. Um, and again, that's kind of the era that I grew up in, right? Where we didn't talk about race. It was supposed to be this colorblind society where no one saw our race. And what that ended up making me feel like was people don't see all of me because I am a color. I, I do have a racial background, everyone does. Um, and, and so people ignoring that was like, how, how do you not see me? Like, I'm a first generation American. Do you not see my family? Do you not see my culture? Do you not see my background? Do you not hear my language? Um, it, it hurts, that is painful. Um, on the flip side, the N word to me was weaponized a lot when I was growing up. Um, and that was very painful too, because I always like to say I'm racially ambiguous. People don't know between calling me the N-word or calling me a wetback or a beaner. Um, so I got called both of them, uh, unfortunately, throughout my childhood, um, sometimes even by people who I would have counted as friends. Um, and so again, going back to what Dr. Meg was saying, the context of the conversation is critical. In my household, I grew up in the 90s. I listened to deep hip hop. <laughs> I know I don't look it, but that's the music that my husband and I grew up with, right? It's my kids, when it's time to go, we say regulators mound up and they all know like what that's about, right? So in our household, we know what that culture is, but I don't ever feel the need to say the N-word and neither do my kids. And if they did, I, my first question would be, why do you feel the need to say that? Is it because you're appreciating this culture and you want to be a part of it? Does that person appreciate that being said back? Do they appreciate you using that language back? Most of the time, no. Um, is it because you are making fun or denigrating someone? Then that's a definite no. There are rarely any times in our household 
where I could fathom the use of the N-word being justified. And so for us in our house, that is a word that we don't say. And there are a list of words that we don't say. Words that were okay when I was a kid. We used to say the R word all the time. When someone dropped the ball, you say the R word to them. Um, we used to say the F word when people you know, didn't know uh, if a person was acting according to their gender, we'd say the F word to them, right? And for me, those words are non-negotiable. And a lot of that has to do with being on the receiving end of it. Um, knowing that those words can be weaponized and often are, um, and knowing that there's no equivalent. There's no way for me to, to give that pain back to you. It's, it's a powerless feeling when someone uses this language. And I understand, again, like that hip hop culture, I understand hearing the lyrics and wanting to sing along and wanting to be a part of it. Um, I also understand that my mom calls my dad Alfonsito and I don't call him that. That that language is not okay for me. Even though I love my dad and I wanna like be a part of that, I'm not part of that, right? And so as a language arts teacher, it's okay to tell a kid that language is off limits for you. Here's why, if you wanna delve into it, if you think they're mature enough to handle, here's why, then explain, here's why that language is off limits to you. Um, I heard a speech and I'm, I'm gonna pull it up really fast by Ta Nehesi Coates, um, where he kind of breaks this down in a way that meant so much to me because he just made it make sense. I work as part of a culture and why it can't be used in a different context. For me as a language arts teacher, it is hard because our books have that language in it. But those words were used in a hurtful and demeaning context back then. And bringing them up now in the classroom without context is also hurtful and demeaning. So to me, those words just, I, I don't have an excuse for it. I don't have a way to justify it. Um, so it makes, it makes for a hard conversation as an English teacher to say, we're, we're not going to read this book because it uses hurtful language. But I would rather say that to my student than know that there's a kid silently feeling all this pain inside and feeling the spotlight on them and feeling that pain um, from me just reading a book out loud. It's not worth it. There's nothing that makes it worth it. Um, so I'm really excited for the work that we're doing as a district to find books that highlight some of the joy and some of the beauty of BIPOC culture um, that don't necessarily shine a light on the pain all the time, that don't use language that denigrates people and puts people down, but shows us the bright side. Because there are a ton of bright sides about being a Black Latina. There are so many bright sides to that. And I, for one, would love to share that with my with my friends, with my colleagues, instead of always sharing my pain. It's exhausting to always share your pain. Um, and unfortunately, that's what a lot of BIPOC people are asked to do. That's what a lot of women are asked to do is to share our pain, share our pain. And every time it's like opening the wound up again and again. I wanna show you something else. I wanna show my students something else. I wanna show them the things that they can be the things that the world has in store for them. I don't wanna show them the pain all the time. 
And so I, I really do um, look forward to moving forward in that process and finding new texts. Um, I think it's time. Um, and, you know, I'm an English teacher, so am I sad to see some of these books go? Yeah, but they're not going anywhere. They're still in the library. Um, you know, they're, they're not disappearing. So that's, uh, that's kind of my thoughts on that. <laughs> it's a lot, but that's where I am <laughs> with the books. Yeah, um, and there's also a video interview of uh, Tanahashi Coates talking about, you know, why context matters. Um, and maybe Lucy, you could uh, find that or I'll look for that and post that in the chat or if you have it up there. The yeah, I'll, I'll look it up if I have it. Uh, I specifically wanted to get the name right. So I have it saved up. I'll put it in the chat right. Perfect, okay. Um, Stephanie, do you wanna, did you yeah, wanna, I wanna add something there? I wanted to add, like, I think the conversation, um, conversations with the kids uh, about this subject matter is so important. So like in our household, um, we talk about like, when I, when, when, when there were Black Lives Matter rallies and, and I went with my kids, we would talk about my experience with racism. We would talk about you know, my fear even of going to the rallies, you know, as an Asian person going to a Black Lives Matter rally, I felt vulnerable. How was I going to be received? And I would have those conversations with my kids. Or if, you know, like I have a 14, almost 15 year old stepson who listens to rap. And when we hear language that is not acceptable in our household, we don't just say, turn it off. We say, turn it off and Here's why. Let's talk about it. How do you, what are you hearing? How do you feel about that? What's your perspective? Like we actually have flushed out conversations. It's not just turn it off. That's not acceptable because there has to be an understanding behind the rules, you know, and that goes for, for everything, but especially about this subject matter. And, um, you know, my kids are just a quarter Korean and three quarters white. They present white. So just explaining to them. So it's interesting for me, you know, growing up with white, mostly white parents. Um, my mom is Korean, but I grew up mostly with my dad. And then now raising kids who no one can tell that they are Asian um, and explaining to them what my experience is. I'm fascinated that they will never experience racism firsthand. It's totally fascinating to me. And we talk about it and then opening up conversations. Like we read books at dinner time. Like we'll read a few pages of a book, you know, especially now about, um, you know, black lives matter movement, like all these books that have come out. Um, we choose a book and we'll read a couple pages and it will open up a conversation. And even though like most of the time, my kids are like, Oh, we're going to do this again. Like, this is so boring. I know they're learning something and more importantly, well, maybe not more importantly, but equally as importantly, I'm learning something and that these topics, we are purposefully um, bringing these topics into our family discussions. It is so absolutely necessary to bring the, these topics into your family conversations. I think, especially if you're white, like most of the you know, my husband's white, my kids are white. Um, so it's, it's just so important. So if your whole household is white, it is even more important. Um, you know, and also I have to say like during the black lives matter stuff at the height of it, 
I was reaching out to my black friends and asking them, how, how are you? And that those were uncomfortable conversations. It was uncomfortable. I didn't want them to feel like, oh, I, you know, it was like, you know, just because it's, it's like in fashion right now that I'm reaching out to see how they are. So the, so it's like, be willing to be uncomfortable. And I have to tell you now that there's so much violence against the Asian community, people are reaching out to me and asking me how I'm doing. That means so much just knowing that people are recognizing that this could be a difficult time. I could be scared. I'm definitely scared for my mother and my grandmother who's still alive. Thank God. But, um, you know, and I'm, I'm not so scared about myself, but you know, I'm like, maybe I should be, but it means so much to me to have people reaching out to me. And I, um, I know it may be uncomfortable for them because I was uncomfortable when I was reaching out to my black friends, when it was like, you know, the focus was on the BLM movement. So be willing to be uncomfortable, be willing to have conversations, purposefully bring these conversations to your family time. They're so important. It's the only way things will change. Alma, did you want to add something? I just wanted to underline and tie together two things that, that uh, Lucia and Stephanie said. One is um, we don't want to like relive our trauma all the time for you. <laughs> um, that's nobody, that's not, I'm a jovial person by nature. And, and it's just not, you know, it's just not something anybody would want to do um, all the time. But then, and then the other comment about reading, because it's kind of lazy to, and I'm using that word, that's, that's a curse word in our house, but I'm using that word intentionally. It's kind of lazy to just go to your Asian friend or your black friend or your Latino friend or your gay friend or your disabled friend or whoever and say, so tell me what it's like, tell me about your pain. Because all of that stuff is in books. And if you, and, and my personal experience is an anecdote. If you really wanna understand this issue, read a book, there are excellent ones. I have been recommending the word, the book Cast to everyone. Because boy, and if you don't like books, then the documentary 13th, everything I would ever tell you and more is in those two pieces of, of, of content. And so you do the work. You're just putting the onus on me to make you feel empathy when you really need to do research. And I, I'm finding that being the, an ally to the Asian community, I've asked Stephanie one question. I need to read. <laughs> I need to, it's like, it's not about what she went through. It's about what has happened to this entire group of people and what, what do I not know? And, and what, can, what are we doing and what can we do? Is not to just drain those two people. I think it's great if you let them know that you're interested and you're doing you're doing this work on your own, but the onus is on us as allies, not on the person to whom we are trying to be an ally. That's I just wanted to tie those two things together because read a book and don't make me relive my trauma is like if we don't if we could we could end this right now if we <laughs> we just make, if people just understand those two things all of us I don't and I'm speaking to myself as much as I am to anybody else. There's a, it reminds me of an amazing TED talk about, that's by a, um, an African author that I'm not going to be able to say her name correctly. So I'm going to put it in the chat, but she talks about the dangers of the single narrative. And Lucy and I have had a lot of conversations about this, but like, as we were looking at the books that we've read, that we read as, as kids and that we've been reading in Burbank, it's the single narrative. It's just tragedy. And, you know, 
just trauma. And to Lucy's point earlier that there are so many beautiful books now about all different cultures that can be celebrated. And um, you have triumph and you have um, you know, heroes that are not the white saviors. And these are some of the books we need to balance out those books that are about the trauma with the books about heroes from this, the, the same kind of cultures. Um, I had written a question that I wanted to ask you where I, a couple of days ago, where I had, I said, uh, you know, students, middle school students in particular are on their computer all the time, you know, usually unsupervised now. And so they're exposed to the news of the day. You know, there's no sheltering kids from information anymore. We live in an information society. It's, it's, they're getting, they're getting blasts on their phone. Um, so, you know, how do, we've touched on this quite a bit, so we won't talk, on, talk too long about this, but how do you recognize, how do we best talk to our children? And the question I had written was about like disturbing and tragic events, but today we had, you know, an exciting event that still needs to be talked about why it was so significant um, in, in the context of a racially unjust world and why this was a significant day. Does, would anyone like to say anything about how we talk to our kids about the news of the day? Velma, please. I'm, I, you know, just like as an adult, I don't want to revisit every tragic thing. <laughs> I, I also don't know that kids are ready for all of that. I, I find that kids are very empathetic um, and they are so sophisticated now because, you know, I think, I believe the internet, everybody hates online stuff, but I think it's accelerating the development of their intelligence. I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, emotionally, developmentally, their kids like ever, you know, so, so that means that you, they're emotionally the same way we were, but they're dealing with all this, this information that is way past age appropriate. And so, I do agree, agree that you can't really filter it. And I do agree that you can't um, prevent it. You can't pretend, you know, can't create a bubble, but I don't know that I would go way out of my way with each one of these incidents because I mean, okay, so there was this resolution of this trial today. There were these three guilty verdicts. Um, th that's gonna be appealed, you know, and you know, kids are, they wanna cross it off the list. It's like, I thought that was done. You know, it's like, but the system is, is sympathetic, you know, and so it's going to be appealed. And then there's the other case in the same area that's going to just start up and we're going to go right through this whole thing. So I think you're kind of setting kids up if you try to deal with what's happening today. That's why I'm saying it's an ongoing conversation. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to say that. I don't want to do that. But it is an ongoing conversation because we live in, if not the most, and certainly one of the most diverse cultures, American culture in history. And it's, has amazing aspects, but it means you you never really get past this. It doesn't mean it's always a problem. It's always negative. As everyone said, there's positives, but I just think you have to commit to an ongoing conversation with inflections. I, I do not recommend responding to every one of these events. You're going to traumatize these kids or, and yourself. I didn't watch one second of that trial, not one second. I, I refuse to accept black trauma as entertainment or as, 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 as anything anymore. I just, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to reach my tipping point. If I, if I, if I don't just like cut it off. So I've cut it off. I follow it vaguely 
in the news. I know there was a verdict. I know I, for the first time, saw what the charges were. I didn't, it, we, we can't, we can't take ourselves through that. And we definitely can't take our kids through that. And certainly not during a pandemic. I just, that's, that's crazy to me. <laughs> it's hard enough keeping them mentally, <laughs> at least in our house. <laughs> we find that that's enough. Just like, let's just get through this pandemic. <laughs> I let them know the verdict came in, but, but we haven't talked about it at all. Um, you know, and, and, and they will come to me and I'll respond to that. And I'm prepared mostly, but there's too much of this in this country. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't talk about all this stuff. We just can't. Lucy. Well, my kids are a little older, so I have a sophomore and a, a freshman. And, um, one thing that I know is that these kids at the high school level are extremely plugged in to what is going on. And my kids are allowed to have social media. Um, I'm a friend on all social media uh, apps, but I know from seeing their feeds what their friends are talking about. And this is kind of, it, it is a bombardment of information. So on days where there's something particularly traumatic and scary or overwhelming, I make sure that I talk to them first before they go and find out on Instagram from their friends. And I also have been known to take cell phones away from my kids, um, not because they're in trouble, but for their own mental health, just like what Belma is saying. Like, we, I know that this is a traumatic thing. You're being bombarded with this information. It's going to make you anxious. Can I take your phone away for a few days? Just let this die down and then you can get back on social. Um, that's the way that we deal with the mental health aspect of getting all of this thrown at them all the time. Um, because kids in high school, again, they're activism based. My kids care a lot about these issues. Um, to their own detriment sometimes. And so as a parent, I do have to step in and say, hey, I know, I know that you're, you want to do right. And I know that you want to get involved, but I can also see that this is not healthy for you at your age right now. And so I need to step in as a parent. So it is okay. Um, I, we want our kids to, to kind of walk that line where they're involved, they're plugged in, they know what's going on, they're allies but we also need to care for them as children and know that they are children first before they can be an ally. They have to watch their own hearts and make sure that they are okay with processing this information. Um, and that's hard for teenagers to do. Um, and you know, it's hard for adults to do quite honestly, sometimes you get carried away in social media and you, you know, I give myself anxiety when I'm on, like on a day like today, I, I had to shut it down because I couldn't handle all the input. Mm -hmm. So it is okay to tell your kids to take off the ally hat for a second if you see that it's detri detrimental to them and to let them take care of themselves. It's like the oxygen mask, you know, they can't take care of other people if they haven't taken care of themselves first. Um, and that's not being selfish. That's not being a bad person or a bad ally. That's being a human being and knowing your limitations. Um, so that's just what I would say if, if your kids are older or if they're on social media at all, is it's a little different process with them because they can't escape it. When they have their phones next to them in the middle of the night, they can't escape it. They, they go on and look at it. 
So it, it might be a situation where you have to take the phone physically away from them mm -hmm. to help them digest stuff and then process it and then come back to it when they're feeling okay. Stephanie, did you want to add something? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, well, I, I definitely talked about it today. I had um, one of my girls, we have four kids in our household. I had one of my girls who um, learned about it in, in school and then two others. I haven't circled around with my stepson yet, but um, so I talked to my three girls about it at separate times, just because I was touched base with them at different times throughout the day, but one of them had already heard about it. So she brought it up to me. But I think it's important in her household because, like I said, my kids present white. I think it's important to bring these this subject matter to the table because I want them to know that we are a socially aware family. And it's important to be socially aware and to care. And even though they feel like, wow, that's something that will never happen to me. That's something that's over there that happens to people who are not, don't look like me, that it matters. What happens to other people matters and we care. And then also looking at it from all aspects, you know, it's, it was a victory in our household and it's a bittersweet victory that I do not, I'm not like, you know, I, I said, you know, it's interesting to me that people are um, celebrating and it is a celebration, but it's a bittersweet celebration because nobody wins. There's so many lives ruined by this violence that took place, this needless, needless violence. Justice was done and it's bittersweet. And it makes me even more sad today than when I originally watched the video of the incident. Um, it just, you know, it's, I just want to cry right now. It's just, it's just that it's just a tragedy all around. And um, that I do, I just think it's important that we do talk about things like this in our household and gently, you know, and, and it's interesting to, to, to see where the conversation leads because it did become a whole conversation about, well, you know, what kind of sentencing is he going to get and what does it mean? You know, not that he's, he's going to get a life sentence, but what does it mean when somebody gets a life sentence? And if he did get a life sentence for all three of his charges, what is three life sentence? You know? So it's just like, it just, it's like, I let them, I give them my, I, I, I share with them how I process my sadness, the tragedy of it that I feel. And then I also let them express themselves and I let them carry the conversation to different places, you know, see what they're fascinated about, see what they hold on to and what they have questions about. I'm always pro communication all the time and transparency in my household. And to me, that's just what works. Mr. Avila, I know that you run our student diversity, equity and inclusion group. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you had anything to add that's from our actual student perspective. Well, you know what? I am, I am very privileged to sit on two student-led groups. One deals with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and another one deals with PBIS, which is how to make uh, Dolores Huerta a uh, safe and inclusive climate for all students. And the same conversations come up where we as adults need to listen, active listening to students and our children. 
they feel unheard. They feel that they don't have a voice in their home and at school. They feel they don't have a voice in their community. They feel muted, you know, if you want to put it in Zoom. They feel that adults want to mute them. And that is heartbreaking to me. When uh, every time they have the opportunity to voice their own concerns, their own issues, their own emotion, they are full of gratitude. They love it. And they tell me. And they say, thank you, Mr. Art, for letting us speak our voice, because I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that in the classroom. I'm not allowed to speak my voice on the, on the on, outside the school. I'm not allowed to speak my voice at home. I'm just told to do. I'm just told to listen. I'm just told to follow rules. I'm told, 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 but no one says, how are you, what are you thinking about today? Or how do you think about that rule, right? Here, here, here are our expectations. What do you think about them? What do you think about what's happening in the world today? Tell me, you tell me, how do you see the world? So that's my biggest, you know, for families out there, active listening is the key with your children. Just okay. listen to I, them. I have a question, may I? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I have two, I'm raising two black sons. And there are consequences for things that they say mm -hmm. um, in dealing with the cops, in dealing with teachers, in dealing with storage. I mean, this George Floyd thing started in a, a market. And so it's great to say, let them be free. It could get them killed, honestly, mm -hmm. is why I, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this to attack you. I'm like, this no. is a genuine question. What do you do when that same freedom that I hear you, other people get to have, can get right. your kid killed? They can't talk like that. Someone's going to call the police at the school and have them arrested. And then once you're in that system, you can die. So now right. what? How do you deal with that? Because I don't even have an answer to that question. That's why my sons, I, I get that complaint all the time. Mm -hmm. You're muted me. I can't talk to nobody. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to keep you alive. I don't want to say that to them. Right. So then what you do is you, we formulate this thing called coding. You, you know, how to code yourself, how to self-regulate, right? How to know your audience. I remember my dad always telling me, know your audience, know who you're speaking to. Right. If you are in a safe place, and you can talk your heart and can talk freely, this is a place, if you are in maybe a school where you can't talk your, your freely, just know the audience. Make sure that the person in that room is going to protect you. If he's, so we do have to learn how to code ourselves, but students, children need, do need a safe place where they can express themselves freely. And, 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 let, and so that you can validate their voice, that their voice counts. Um, and, and, and if you're worried about some of the things they're going to say, then as a parent, you're teaching about coding. We all do it. We all have to practice coding. I have no idea and what you mean by that. Coding is how to self-regulate your conversation. You know, when to speak of something in a certain place or when to speak freely at home. Um, I think you're, you're referencing code switching. 
which right. is that idea, right? Where I can, I speak in a certain way around certain people, you know, and a different way around my friends and a different way around my family. Right. Like hopefully, you know, I would be more professional in a principal's meeting and I would speak differently than when I was right. hanging out with my friends. So we do right. code switching. And I think right. it's what I heard, what I heard when all of you were talking about talking to your kids is, is the first thing that you did that you didn't even mention was you created a safe space in your right. home with your kids. And mm -hmm. I think that's the first step is, is that the kids need a safe space to be able to talk about these things. You've created that at home, but, and Belma, your, your point is that may be their only safe space is at your mm -hmm. house. And you also feel this real, sense of responsibility to make sure that they understand, okay, it's okay to say these things at home, but when you go to school, when you're out in the community, you can't always speak your mind. Mm -hmm. And like, what a burden that is for you as a parent. I think we need to recognize that white people like myself need to recognize that that, that, that has to happen at your house, even though that wouldn't have to happen at my house. So the, the thing that I don't, you know, whenever I have these conversations, I'm getting these calls, like Stephanie said, we're, we're getting calls and, and it's exhausting, but I, I don't complain about it because I know where it's coming from. The thing that, that I, the, the number one thing I try to explain is that when every black family, if you have black friends, you want to be a black, you want to ally to a black person, ask them about the talk. The most complex aspect of parenting is the talk. You have to figure out as a parent, especially if you have boys, but it, Regardless, you have to figure out, okay, so when and how do I tell this child that interactions with the police could get you killed? That is, there is no good way to have that conversation. It's not, that, that moment of joy when you first have a baby, I remember right over in Burbank, is it, what is it, Providence? What's the name of the, you know, right over there, you know, it's like, I thought, oh my God, there they are. And, oh, wow, I'm going to have to do the talk. You know, it's like literally the day one, I was starting to think about that instead of just the pure joy that I guess other people get. And that is something you carry because I'm listening to Mr. Avi. I'm like, okay, yeah, I love that idea. We, some of us on this know my sons, there's no way I can let at least one of them, probably not either of them, just speak their mind freely mm -hmm. because they're not mature. That's right. it's not their bad kids or evil. They're not racist, none of them. But they they are emotional and they are they 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 are smart and they see injustice and they 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 watch these superhero movies and want to exact revenge and, and all of that conversation. I don't know, you could speak to this, Dr. Meg. There are certain things they say that trigger you having a law enforcement response. You have you have to call the police if right. something comes out of their mind, they're out of their mouth in the heat of the moment. And then I now that's when their lives are in danger. Yeah. So I'm 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 hearing what you're saying, and I'm not seeing how I can wear that hat. I, and I'm like, I don't know how to even accomplish that. You know, and yeah. if nothing else, the relief that if I were an ally, just understanding that as a parent, I'm not a stupid person and I can't figure this out. It's like, how do you give them the freedom and tell them the, everything that about them matters? Don't say that. <laughs> Right. that way anywhere else is just it's it's hypocrisy and they're too smart i'm not going to get away with that i'm not going to get away with that mm -hmm. they're, they're going to go what are you talking about because that's how we talk intelligently i talk to them like i'm talking to you i don't talk, i don't change anything vocabulary look it up right. it's, 
So they are smart enough to understand it was it's some BS for me to say you're free, except not free. It's, it, I don't know how to deal with this one. I wish well, someone would. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm dying to know. I, code switching is, as you can tell, I'm not a code switcher. You right. get yet. I don't well, know. What I, one, of, one of the things I do have to say that you have to have an open communicate communication with your child or else they're going to find someone else to have it with. Every night you do a talk show yeah. about an hour in their room and it starts off with, so what do you want to talk about? Mm -hmm. Every single night. Yeah. And sometimes it's about baseball and sometimes today it's going to probably be about this or maybe it's going yeah. to be about this. So I, that's not the problem. The problem is they, they don't yet have the emotional maturity, intellectual maturity to, to code switch. I don't so, code switch. Right. How am I going to teach them to code switch? I'm like, what? This is right. You're wrong, whatever. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. that's who I am. You know, mm -hmm. that's who they are probably right. for that reason. Mm -hmm. There's, it's, it's, you're saying be free, but don't be free. And I'm like, that is not, that's why I work for myself. Because I can't do that. There are people like that. Now what? Get killed? You can't. You you you. It's 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 more complex than than that. I'm you of all people know. So I don't think I won't say it's more complex than you understand. But <laughs> I'm not hearing the answer I need to to to, to, to implement tonight with these yeah. kids. It's like I, well, if the takeaway that I can just provide to you is just provide a safe space for your children to talk to you i mean that's 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 the only thing i can they they have that I'm, I'm saying okay. how do i prepare them to interact at huerta when these things are happening they have pointed views some of which are extremely radical and some of which are just you know, not practical and some of it, you know, but, 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 but there's going to be, there's going to be this official response that you have, that you're legally bound to have. It's like, right. that's what I'm saying. That's like where the rubber hits the road in my, for, for me. Yeah. And I was like, if the point of this is for people to understand what is it like, this is what it's like. It's like, mm -hmm. you gotta freaking figure this stuff out. Isn't and it's this life is at stake. This is what it's like. Mm -hmm. This is what, plus everything else that every other parent has. Mm -hmm. You have this extra stuff. Like, when do you have the talk? How much? How much of their intellectual freedom and 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 right to an opinion can you allow at this age? Because this, it's just, it's 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 exhausting. <laughs> it's what it's like, and I'm exhausted by this. And I don't know what to do. And I'm still, I'm hearing you, and I'm not hearing you. <laughs> I'm still not getting any because I already do that. We literally every night, an hour. It's their favorite part of the, the day. It's like we just talk. That's not enough. Talk well, Emma, you, I mean, yes, you are doing this. You are providing that. And then for the school piece, you are being an advocate, and you have been, and I know because of the position that I'm in, I know that you have been an advocate for your boys with people at the school. And so we understand those things that you're talking about right now because you have advocated for them and you have them because they are young and emotionally immature you know they've relied on you to come and speak for them sometimes to help mitigate some of the things that they say i i always say that middle schoolers are like baby vipers baby vipers are the most dangerous because their venom has come in and they don't know how to regulate 
the the and the, so the venom as it pours out of them and that's what a lot of middle schoolers are like and that's why we have issues with mm-hmm. kids using racial slurs and things like that because they've just learned it and they want to try it out and they want to see the impact it has and even they're not consciously thinking that but they've suddenly discovered that their words have power and it makes them powerful um and so you know, it, it is a, it's a real balance, but I think what, what you do is you, you are doing what you've, you've done and advocate and you know who you're, for you who trusted adults are at the school, for your boys who their trusted adults are, you know, if they're about to burst uh, and they need to go and see someone, I sure hope you can name a couple of people that they could, that they could go to, that you know that at this point, a couple of people that they could go to in those moments. And that's, Right. That's the thing I think that you got to do right now. And and they're they're building up some of those skills and they will definitely get there. Um, We you touched on our final question for the evening, which is, you know, how do we teach our kids uh, to be how do how do all of our white families teach kids to be allies um, and to recognize their own white privilege and notice that others are not given the same advantages without burdening them with feelings of guilt. It's one of the great um, pieces of this book that we're starting to explore goes into this. And I think, um, Belma, you, you, you spoke a lot about how it's not fair for us to just go to families of color and ask them to retell their stories. Um, do you, does anyone want to pick this up really quick and talk about what what we can do well I, I i can one of the the first steps i know is by modeling it as adults and doing it ourselves first and showing uh empathy towards and uh, how to be an ally um one example could be you know being involved with elac you know and and seeing how can i help can i help any spanish-speaking families with their forms or be an advocate for them at title at the at the at title one meetings, and making sure that we have equity in our in our school, uh, because I have to say a lot of our fa- a lot of our families and in, in, in those programs are too scared to go to a meeting at school or too shy to be involved. So as an ally, you can be their strength. You can be their advocate, and advocate for these families that are too scared. You know, if you live in a privileged situation, circumstances where you're not part of the low socioeconomic subgroups, you know, find out through your admin, how can I help our low socioeconomic families? So you model it first, and then your students, your children will start watching you how to be an ally. That's one step that I can think of, of being an ally. Mr. Avila, I just have to say that you, you do that every day on campus for all of us. So thank you for that. Um, because you are a person that like we are talking about safe people on campus. I feel like we have a ton of students who find a safe space in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and our kids are smart. If you tell them these people are here to help you, they take you up on it. And most of my students I would say have learned um, the, the, the ones that feel comfortable with me have learned that they can come tell me things and I'm going to be a safe space. And if they pick another teacher or they go to Mr. Avila or they go to Dr. Meg or they go, but most kids 
have the ability to find their person that is their safe space on campus. The next step to me is to be able to have more of us on campus. So training our teachers and our staff so that more and more of our students can go to any teacher and feel comfortable and safe being vulnerable around them. Um, we haven't really had a lot of training on that. Um, and it's something that is inherent in some people like Mr. Avila, he's a person who just from his own heart and his own person is a very accepting and loving person. For other people that doesn't come naturally. And so we need training for sure for our teachers. And that's something that, you know, I'm probably going to be advocating for for the next few years is getting more of our staff and teachers trained on how to be culturally responsive, how to be allies, how to actively listen to students and how to keep our kids safe. Um, to, to Belma's point about code switching, um, it's a survival mechanism, right? And unfortunately, it's still a survival mechanism. It was when you were a kid. It was when I was a kid. I knew how to code switch. When I went home, I spoke in Spanish. When I came home, you know, I did different things. I acted a different way than I did at school. And I still do that as an adult. And unfortunately, we're not in that society yet where people of color have that freedom to be like you said, be themselves wherever they want to be. So until that day happens, as parents, I just say, give your kids a list. Here are three, I, I have personally talked to so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. They are safe people for you to visit on campus. If you ever have a problem, go find Mr. Avila, Dr. Megan, Mrs. Bowers, they're going to help you or whoever those three people are. You might have to do that for a yeah. while. And I wish that um, my kids are also biracial. They present white. So I know that their experience as a student here in Burbank Unified is extremely different than mine. Um, I, we, were, we were studying history and I was telling them, um, you know, the 116th law would have applied to you, even though you guys look white. So um, trying to explain to them how this idea of passing for white still doesn't take away some of the racism that's inherent, right? And I had to have that conversation with them. You, you, if someone is really looking to start trouble, they could, you know, and, and you just have to know how to behave in certain situations. Uh, don't ever put yourself in, at risk. And it's sad that we still have to have those conversations, but we do as parents, you know? Again, tell them who their allies are if they, if they can't find them on their own or ask them, better yet, Hey, if something were to happen on campus and you were, you know, kind of scared or you, you got frustrated, who would you go talk to and see, see what they say? If they say no one, tell them, you know, I talked to Dr. Meg. She seems really cool. Go talk to her if there's ever trouble. Um, that would kind of just be the main thing. And as far as allies go, um, speak up, speak up. If you want your child to be an ally, they need to be able to speak up without being confrontational. But when they see something going down, they hear a word that shouldn't have been uttered. They hear some bullying going on or they see something that they shouldn't be seeing on campus. They need to speak up either to the nearest adult or just ask the kid that's doing it. Why are you doing that? A lot of times just being asked that question is arresting and gets people to stop doing it. Like, you called that kid that name. Why did you do that? All of a sudden they stop. Um, so just being vocal, using their words and using their voice to help other people. That doesn't mean, um, you know, yelling. That doesn't mean getting in a fight. It doesn't mean being confrontational. It just means being brave and, and saying something. 
anything in that moment when you see somebody needs you. Um, as an adult, I'm just learning how to do that because I grew up with the under the radar mentality, right? I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want anyone else to get in trouble. So I'm not going to say anything. It takes courage to say something, um, but it's something we all need to do now. And we're seeing the consequences of years and years of silence, right? Mm -hmm. And if we want a change, it starts with us using our voices independently. And then hopefully all of us together are loud enough that it creates a change, right? So that's what I would say to kids, use your voice, use your words and, and stand up for people, stand up for yourself. Um, and that's how you're an ally. Well, that was a pretty great place to end, I think. Uh, unless there's anyone on our panel that wanted to say any other closing remarks or parting I words, just, Belma? I just want to say one thing. It's not just white people who are allies. Um, there's this mindset that an ally is a white person. No, we're all allies for somebody. We all should be speaking up for somebody. It helps us. It makes us better. You know, I just, that's it. <laughs> I consider myself an ally. And I think we all should. Yeah, Mr. Avila's opening story proves that point beautifully. Exactly. Uh, right. That um, so I, I appreciate our panelists so much for coming and sharing with us and being vulnerable in this safe space that we try to create here. Um, it starts with you know we talked about this in the DEI committee. You know breaking the silence. How it's it. This is the most prepared I have ever been for anything like this because I was so concerned about you know, saying things correctly and doing this right, because it's such an important topic to me. And, you know, I want to do right by this. And so this is our first, this is our first go at it. And we've got, we want to plan one of these, probably maybe even once a month um, next year with all these different kind of topics. And I want to reach out to our, our attendees today. If you have an area and you want to be on a panel and you have something to share, please reach out to me, reach out to Stephanie. Um, or, you know, you know how to get a hold of me. I'll, I'll get you in touch with Stephanie. And this is the work that our DEI committee, I think, is, is wants to really take on for the next year is, is doing these kind of events. Um, on, we wanted to do one big one. We thought, no, 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 we want to break this into a lot of smaller components and really dig deep in, in specific areas. So thank you all for attending. Thank you so much, our panelists. You were fantastic. And um, uh, I'm getting, uh, you guys can probably all see the chat is just full of people saying thank you and sharing their thoughts with you guys. So thanks everybody. I really appreciate you guys. <laughs>